This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. All views and opinions expressed are the views and opinions of the individuals and sponsors presenting them, and not the LTB network. Enjoy the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another exciting edition of Sovereign BTC, your guide to the practical side of everyday Bitcoin use. This is episode number 16, and it is jam-packed, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start off the program by bringing you a clip from Glenn Beck's recent little roundtable on Bitcoin. Glenn Beck, of course, is the conservative, somewhat libertarian uh, political pundit. He used to have a program on Fox News, then he went independent. He's doing GBTV, also does The Blaze Dot com. He recently had a 15-minute segment that was all about Bitcoin, and it included a few notable Bitcoin experts and enthusiasts, including Elizabeth Ploche of the Bitcoin Foundation and BitPay, Jeffrey Tucker of Liberty.me, and Christoph Atlas, the author of Anonymous Bitcoin. We've had Jeffrey Tucker on the program multiple times and recently had Christoph Atlas to talk about Bitcoin privacy and uh, how to keep the man away from your stash. So this conversation went very smooth, and I'm very excited to bring it to you. And I'm even more excited that it was heard by millions and millions of people, and a lot of people that may have been skeptical of Bitcoin. Glenn Beck's quite the authority figure for his supporters and his followers. You may remember the 912 Project, which came out around the same time as the Tea Party. And the point is, there's a lot of people that have a lot of faith in Glenn Beck, and for him to endorse Bitcoin and to say he's going to be doing some savings in Bitcoin, I think it's really exciting, and I think a lot of good things are to come of it. So we're going to start this episode by playing you the 15-minute discussion that took place between these three Bitcoin enthusiasts and Mr. Glenn Beck, and then we're going to have an interview with Jeffrey Tucker, who was on the panel, to get his thoughts, his insights, and what he thinks about this particular interview and the implications for Bitcoin. We also talk liberty and Bitcoin and all that good stuff as well. And then we're going to bring you another informative edition of Into the Minds, your update on the latest and greatest in Bitcoin and script mining. This one is a jam-packed edition. We start off with, of course, the numbers on the Bitcoin and Litecoin mining world, and then we bring you some news, the latest and greatest news coming out of the mining world. We actually have an interview with Ruben Alexander, who is the editor of Bitcoin Magazine. They're working on a collaborative project to put together a miner's manifesto, and that, of course, would educate new miners and send a message to the mining manufacturers and retailers on what the consumers expect. We chat about that with Ruben Alexander. And then finally, we do an interview with a good friend of mine named Pat Butler. He's a mining expert, been doing it for quite some time. We chat about mining difficulty and what new miners can do to avoid getting burned. So I want to thank you for tuning in to Sovereign BTC. You can listen to us on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. They recently upgraded the website. It looks rather smooth and intuitive. So check that out at letstalkbitcoin.com, along with the other excellent podcasts like the Ed and Ethan Live Bitcoin Report, Sex and Science Hour, and of course, Bitcoins and Gravy and the flagship Let's Talk Bitcoin. Check those out at letstalkbitcoin.com. I want to give a shout out to the LRN listeners on Liberty Radio Network, lrn.fm. You can hear us all across the world broadcasting on their worldwide online transmission. And I want to invite you to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash SovereignBTC. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash SovBTC. And check out the website at SovereignBTC.com. Well, let's go ahead and get on with it, folks. Here's the roundtable that recently took place on Glenn Beck's program with Elizabeth Ploche, Jeffrey Tucker, and Christoph Atlas. Really great information. Glenn Beck approached it in a really outstanding, curious way. So I think it was great for Bitcoin. Without further ado, here's that roundtable. 
we're going to go into my office now and, and meet some experts. Elizabeth Ploche, she is a Bitcoin Foundation board member. Jeffrey Tucker of Liberty.me, and Christoph Atlas. He's the author of Anonymous Bitcoin. Come on, let's see if we can figure it out. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Hey. Christoph, Christoph nice to meet you. How are you? How are you? Jeff, and I'm, this is the day I don't wear a bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> How are you guys? Doing well. Okay. So you saw, obviously, um, or at least read some report um, about how unbelievably stupid I am on this. Um, and so you're all been there. Yeah, I know. I mean, because it's really, it's, I mean, I was, my wife and I were talking about it last night and trying to understand something that isn't physically even there. It, it doesn't make sense. It replicates physical property, but it's actually made out of digits. So it's a little bit spooky and strange. Right. So can I start? Um, let me start with that. Um, Gold has value because it's always been the traditional thing that we've always gone back to, blah, blah, blah. Everything only has value because we give it value. But in the end, you're, you're holding something. Right. Wh how do you get around that? Why does Bitcoin have value at all is the question. Yes. Right. If you took away the payment system associated with Bitcoin, Bitcoin would be worth zero right now. It's the payment network that gives it value. It's both a currency and a payment system. We, that's a little strange. We're used to thinking those things as separate. You know, we think of like dollars, and then we think of like a PayPal or something, or Visa, MasterCard. Within Bitcoin, they're both united. The payment system and the currency are one single thing. And it's the sheer efficacy and brilliance of the payment system that led Bitcoin to uh, have value. Bitcoin lived on the internet for 10 months at a zero price. And it was only once the, the payment system was tested and tested and tested again, uh, the market said, this is extremely cool. This is amazing. You can transfer stuff from here to there, anywhere in the world, direct peer-to-peer. -peer. That's a valuable thing to have. Okay, and so, then it obtained value. Okay, so I understand that, and I think that's fantastic. Once I get off the cyberspace, how do I use it in real world? Can I use it in the real world? You can use Bitcoin for so many things. You can use it to buy plane tickets. You can buy food with it. You can use it for charitable donations. Um, the best thing about it is you can reach people around the world. There are 2.5 billion people around the world who don't have bank accounts. You can send money to those individuals without a bank account. So practical things, but also helping people in need. How do I send? I just send it to their... We've got our phones right here. We can show you how to do it with our blockchain app. So I have Bitcoin. Yeah, get into the blockchain. This is, this, this is risky if we actually try to, if we attempt yeah. to do this. Well, we, you can, I can see yeah. there's an app on my phone called blockchain.info, yeah. and it's my Bitcoin wallet. Um, and there are various transactions here. But the most simple way is I'm going to send. Are oh, you going to send to me? I can send you some coins, okay. yeah. Anybody should be sending. Um, they should send money to me. I know. <laughs> well, we need to set you up with a wallet after the show. I'm going to request payment, which gives me a QR code. And that's just uh, that's just a way of rendering uh, a Show public address. Uh, it's a way of rendering a public address. Uh, that's all. And she's going to scan that, get my public address. We've never done this before. So I set up. I'm going to send him about two dollars worth of Bitcoin. That's not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send payment, but okay. So I'm going to scan from QR code and pick up the address. She got it. Okay. And then I'm going to crack the amount, so I'm going to do, I'll do point zero zero one. 
okay. And then I'm going to do turn, and then I'll do send payment. You can have it yes. to your address book and do that anytime you want. Yeah. So I'll call this Jeffrey Tucker. <laughs> All right. So, so I go into a restaurant. I just scan with my phone, yeah. and I send it. You know, yes. What's, what's funny is that um, it, it's not. It's at restaurants in those kind of cases. Even if the restaurant doesn't accept Bitcoin. It's really nice when somebody in your party does, uh, because then uh, this happens all the time among my friends. You know, we'll have one person pay, mm -hmm. and then you pay for your portion of the middle of Bitcoin. Like, you're done. It's just okay. so cool. It's so, so easy. You said um, you said um, it's the system, but you also said it's the currency. Yeah. That seems like trouble, because all of the people in government and the central banks and everybody else, and I know the government has just said that it's an asset, but you use the word currency, yeah. why doesn't somebody come down and shut you, shut you That's down? That's a great question. So that, this is one okay. of the, the primary motivators for the design of Bitcoin. To understand this design, you just need to know a little bit of, uh, just a little bit of background. So if you have a digital currency, there's basically two ways they could go about doing it. You could have a centralized digital currency. And of course, the problem is that governments don't want to see that competition. They're going to shut you down. That happened to the Liberty Reserve. That happened to eGold in the last decade. The other way they can do it is you can have a peer-to-peer -peer distributed uh, currency where people are running the software over the world. There's no way that you can try to find every single person in the world that's running the software, tell them stop, I'm not going to allow you to do that. So that's a way of making it censorship resistant or shutdown resistant. But when you do that, you need to solve some additional issues, right? So when, when it's centralized, when we have the government or some company doing it, then there's, it, things are easy. They can mint the units of currency. They can validate the transactions are not fraudulent. When you have a peer-to-peer -peer based system, you have to make sure that enough honest people are able to do all this stuff that the system is going to work. And that's the genius of, of Bitcoin, is they figured out ways for people to validate these transactions and to mint the new coins in a fair way that everyone is going to agree on and that's going to be predictable in the future. Okay, so can you, um, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come back and then you show me the, the chalkboard here on what you've done and, and explain this and then, and then tell me um, 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 what, what, the, what the next step is. What's the next big hurdle that you have to get past for people to say, okay, I mean, this is kind of like, this is really, I kind of feel like it's the electric light. It's a gigantic innovation. We haven't seen innovation in money in 100 years at least. So we've just sort of leaped. longer than that. Longer than that. Longer than that. Maybe, this is maybe, totally maybe different. This is right. like going from clamshells to right. not even it's, that. It's because the government controlled the system up to up till right. very recently, until Bitcoin. Now we're seeing the kind of innovation in money that we've seen in cars and telephones and you know, other kinds of technology. It's been held back for so long. Now we see this gigantic leap forward. Okay, back into. We are sitting here in my office in the studios, and we are. You might at home be seeing a flash of light. It's because we're arc welding across the um, uh, across the uh, hallway. And uh, and I said right before I came in, I love that look because it, for some reason it just makes me think of innovation. Thinks me it makes it reminds me of America when we were really charging. And the reason why I wanted to do this show is, and I hope this is just the beginning of a long relationship of trying to understand these things. America's either going to go into authoritarianism, uh, the world is, authoritarianism, or it's going to be freer than it ever has been. Um, and I'm counting on technology to empower people like they've never been able to. So if we just look at this chalkboard, 
The only thing really is up at the top that I think we need to cover is you get rid of the banks, right? You get rid of the Federal Reserve, all of the central banks. You get rid of all of the stuff we think we need now because of old technology. And it is... The dollar is old technology. That's a good way to put it. I it's think. it's it's almost it, it's yeah. it's almost just a barter system, right? Trustless peer to peer system, direct transfer of funds, no trust in one central point of failure. So I talked to my kids um, um, when I came home from Silicon Valley, and I said, "Kids, I want you to understand, they're in their twenties." And I said, "I want you to understand, Dad knows nothing on this. This is just my gut." But I'm taking some of my money and I'm investing in Bitcoin and I recommend any money that you have, you put some, a reasonable amount in Bitcoin because if it works, A, it will guarantee some freedom and B, it it, it won't collapse as a system collapses and C, it will go up in value, correct? Correct. And so it's, it's a risky, I guess, at this point, but it's almost like looking at Edison and going, I just saw this light bulb and I don't even know how that works yet, but I think if it works, it's going to be huge. For me, the revelation about Bitcoin um, was that when I discovered that it had a limited supply, I was very suspicious of it up until that time. I thought, well, look, nothing digital or electronic can actually have the properties of money because you can infinitely reproduce it. That's the nature of the digital world. Then I, I discovered that the protocol severely limits the rate of creation and it has an upward limit. That's what blew me away. Explain to me, who's best at explaining to me, that's a thing that freaks me out a little bit because everybody always says, oh no, we're setting this up, it's going to be like this forever. No, there's nobody's going to tell. We're putting that into a lockbox. How many times have we heard that? Tell me why somebody can't go in and manipulate that system. Well, there's, there's social and economic forces at play, basically. So if you wanted to change this limit, there's about about 21 million Bitcoins that are supposed to ever be existence, and we'll get to that point. We'll be mined out of Bitcoins somewhere around the year 2140. If you wanted to change that, you would have to convince all these people running Bitcoin software that they need to agree to this change. They need to run a new version of, of Bitcoin based on this changing this $21 million limit. But we know that investors all value Bitcoins based on everyone agreeing that there is this $21 million limit. If you try to extend that, it's going to debase their investment. Investors are going to dump their Bitcoins right away. They want to get out of it. Everyone knows this. And so there's no way you're going to convince people okay. to, to switch over to this and new so version. And these, so these servers that are all around the world held by Big people, institutions, or just individuals? Anyone, really. Anybody can. Anybody come on a blockchain copy? Anyone? Any node? Okay. Um, and so uh, there's, because of the blockchain, there is no way for it really to completely go down, right? Correct. That's right. Yep. And, it, and the blockchain makes it secure. It's forever. Mm-hmm. It's immortal. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then, the, but the other side of that is, this is what my kids said to me. Uh, you know, if I said I want to invest, you know, ten thousand dollars or five thousand dollars, it's not the same as telling my twenty-five-year-old kids, "Hey, five thousand mm. dollars, that's a lot of money." Right. Um, and um, they said, "But what happens if it doesn't work? And what happens if it goes down?" And I said, "Well, but then you lose your investment. There is no FDIC on this, but they're never." Sure. 
with but, that I, guarantee I, of FDIC comes all kinds of problems. I mean, it's possible that Bitcoin, the, the right value of, of Bitcoin is somewhere between zero and infinity. Nobody knows for sure. That's part of the fun of it. It's a real free market. You know, it's not fixed by governments. But and of course, I, if you are a Bitcoin investor, if Bitcoin, if there was some fundamental problem with Bitcoin, what, what would we do? We'd simply take a copy of Bitcoin, fix whatever is wrong with it, and launch the next currency. And then, who, you know, people who are invested in it that understand how to acquire these these cryptocurrencies would be in the, the, the ground floor of this next version of Bitcoin uh, that would be, you know, Bitcoin 2.0, and they'd make, I think they would make massive amounts of money even starting with a very small amount of, of uh, funds. Christoph, okay. do you remember when the blockchain forked last April? It was about this time last year. Sure. I remember staying up late and I watched this thing happen. There was a, a confusion over confirmations, over some transactions. Over, it was actually over a new block, uh, a new block that had entered into the chain, and it had not received a sufficient number of confirmations to actually be wedded to the chain itself. And there was a temporary fork. And I was watching this. It was so exciting. And it lasted about 20 minutes. And I was, you know, watching this happen. And there was a controversy. There was an argument. There was a, a price dip. And then the community got together. They fixed it, reconfirmed, reentered those, those uh, uh, Bitcoin into the chain again. And everything was beautiful again. That convinced me. This is a very carefully monitored system. And it's monitored by the global community. It's amazing to watch. And there is no overlord or no chance of an overlord coming in. Correct. China just block this, right? I think that they... No, what they, have, they, what they did was they, they passed some rules about uh, whether you're able to convert renminbi or yuan or whatever you want to call it into, uh, into bitcoins at these exchanges. But let me go to the flip side. In, I think it was Crete or Greece where they said... Um, we're going to start taking your savings. Cyprus. 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 Yeah. Was. Going into individuals' uh, banking more. accounts. And they and a lot of people put their money into Bitcoin, right? Right. In April, that's why we had a, one of the major price bubbles that took place. But this is, again, a movement for to give power to people around the world who can't depend on governments or even banks protecting their funds. Could we have this? Could we continue this conversation in, in greater detail and try to break this up because, I mean, we, we, I do at this point, I don't see anything being able to free man. There is a currency collapse possible mm -hmm. uh, globally. It could, um, it could happen. And it grows more and more likely every day. Um, and I don't see anybody doing anything but grabbing power and saying, you'll use this, this is the only path that I see on towards the freedom. Is so. The system as it exists is probably not going to be reformed, reformed to prevent right. it. No, we it know this. I the know. political elite are not interested in a gold standard. I know they're not. They're just not going to so do it. So I would love to be able to continue this conversation with you. I thank you guys so much for coming out. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. That was great. And again, millions and millions of people heard that. I think it's a you know it's a small step in the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin, but every little bit counts, and it's good to have Glenn back, no matter what you think about him. He's now seemingly a Bitcoin proponent. Let's go ahead and dig a little deeper. We're going to chat with Jeffrey Tucker, who participated in the roundtable discussion. He had a great opportunity to espouse some great ideas about liberty to Glenn Beck's audience, the, the consistent, pure form of liberty. So we're going to chat with Jeffrey Tucker, get his thoughts on the interview, his thoughts on Glenn Beck and what the implications are for mainstream adoption of Bitcoin. We also talk liberty and getting over the, the dependence on institutions and all that good stuff. Great conversation with Jeffrey Tucker, as always. And here you go, folks. Without further ado, I interviewed Jeffrey Tucker about his experience on the Glenn Beck program. So, Jeffrey, you recently had the chance to participate in a Bitcoin discussion, a roundtable of sorts, 
on Glenn Beck's program, Glenn Beck TV, seen by millions of people. Uh, and he's, he's quite the authority figure with scores and scores of people. I remember when the 912 group uh, came out, and there's just, man, he has a lot of followers, and they're really passionate about liberty and about the Constitution and all that stuff. So I think it was a wonderful opportunity for him to use that air of authority to uh, give Bitcoin a fair shake. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on how that went and what you think what do you think it means for Bitcoin and the movement of Bitcoin supporters as a whole. Just give us your perspective. How do you think it went? How do you think your performance was? Do you think this is going to play well for Bitcoin and for Bitcoin adoption? Well, I was thrilled to be asked. I mean, you can imagine. I was just sitting there and suddenly I got asked to talk about Bitcoin, which only a year ago was considered just this wacky, crazy thing. I remember my first series of articles on this thing. You know, I got like pummeled for falling for some, some sort of digital scam, you know, a pump and dump or whatever. So it's a little weird, you know, a year later, suddenly, you know, Glenn Beck's interested in the topic, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I like the way he approached it, the, the whole s- subject, because it wasn't like he, he felt like he knew anything about it. it wasn't, he wasn't coming in as an expert. He really set up that whole session as a learning and sort of teaching session. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 uh, he introduced the whole segment that, well, he didn't know that much about it. So he brought some experts in you know, to, to tell him about it, which I thought was really very wonderful and sweet. But then as things went on, I realized that he was actually more sort of dedicated to Bitcoin than I had anticipated. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you caught that remark that he said that he thought that a substantial amount of people's uh, savings ought to be in Bitcoin. Yep. I mean, I was I was really taken aback by that because, like, I wouldn't even say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's pretty out there, you know. Um, so I realized that he's he seems to be undergoing some kind of big conversion. To um, to two things, I think one is he start he started to believe in technology as a really great way to change the world. You know, he's uh, he's heavily political. He's been involved in the political process for a very long time, and like nothing ever changes. It's always just mm-hmm. kind of crap. <clears throat> and then he looks at technology and says, "Look, these guys are changing the world through entrepreneurship." So he's fallen in love, in love with that idea. Um, and he's also very, uh, you know, in technology as a means of changing the world. Uh, the other thing is that I think he's really interested in sort of organic uh, reforms that aren't relying on sort of top-down impositions. And nice. for him, Bitcoin seems to be a, a way towards that, a, a kind of non-political way to liberate the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nicely put. Yeah, it seemed like a very genuine conversation. He was coming from a place of genuine curiosity, which always allows the opportunity for people to really gain some knowledge and, and wisdom. I've always been skeptical of Glenn Beck. Um, he seems like he does good work, and the blaze and his program has covered a lot of government abuses and, and kind of enlightened his audience to the fact that government is a treacherous beast. Um, he's covered some of my work on the Agenda 21 front, including it in some of his books. So that's there. He does good work. He educates people about liberty, about the Constitution, if you're into that kind of thing. It's a good you know, middle ground, of course. Uh, but then on the other side of the token, I was always – my skeptical um, – I say that my skepticalness started when uh, in 2007, 2008, he had some really nasty things to say about Ron Paul supporters during one of the money bombs, equating them to potential domestic terrorists, which just so happened to be the same thing that the Department of Homeland Security uh, was emanating. The Southern yeah. Poverty Law Center is the same talking points. Did you get the feeling that there was any bit of conniving going on or, or maybe this is a, a show for some reason? Or you think it was totally genuine and this is just I, a true know- guy? You know, he's an interesting uh, uh, person. I, I kind of expected him to have, like, I've met a lot of big shots in the past, right? And they always, they march around with their star quality, sort of intimidating people, expecting to be doted on and, you know, that sort of thing. I didn't get any of that from him. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, he just seemed um, like a like the most normal person I'd ever met. You know, um, just a regular, super sincere guy. Now he might be temperamental. Uh, politics, I think, in particular, makes people causes people to say things that they really regret. Um, um, I, I don't know what went on in 2008, 2012, whatever year it was that he said that. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's a zero-sum game. So if he, if he was a Romney supporter, he would have definitely seen uh, Ron Paul as a kind of a stalking horse, you know, to, uh, that's trying to drain away support from his man uh, to give it over to Obama or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. there's no t- people kind of lose their minds in political campaigns. I try to be a little bit forgiving of that. And, and also I, I try to remember that and not get involved in them myself. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, I have a sort of studied uh, uh, capacity to kind of uh, filter out all, all politics uh, just, just because I, uh, I, I've seen what it does to people. It makes people absolutely crazy. Yep. Um, so I, you know, I'm sure he said things like that. Yeah, you know, but the thing is that, I mean, maybe he's evolving in his outlook. Mm-hmm. I certainly felt a tremendous amount of sympathy from him um, while we were talking. I mean, I'm not exactly an unknown quantity. I mean, everybody in the world knows that I'm a, a radical anarchist. You know, I mean, that's not an unknown fact. Um, and yet he had me on the show, and he was mm-hmm. very interested. And apparently, John, this morning on his radio show, he read some article of mine in which I said the, that the way forward for, for liberty is the same way that uh, uh, people have liberated themselves in all, all the past, and that is through a radical noncompliance with the rules of the existing regime. Nice. Now, so I don't know where I wrote that. I kind of was searching around to try to figure out where I, you know, I could have, it could have been yesterday, it could have been a month ago, it could have been 10 years ago. You know, I don't, I don't have any clue. I mean, maybe I've written it a hundred times, I don't know. But he grabbed some article of mine, which I was basically advocating, um, you know, radical disobedience and, and noncompliance with the regime as the, as the way forward. And he's reading this on the air with great sympathy yes. and appreciation. So that's pretty weird. That's great. He probably went. Uh, you probably had an impact on him. He went and trolled some of your work and did some research on Jeffrey so. Tucker. You know what always worries me about about people like this uh, a little bit is that unless his mental and intellectual revolution is complete, uh, he could revert very easily come the next political campaign. You know, I'm going to be very curious about this. I mean, whoever the Republican nominee is, is he going to be once again, you know, using the show to kind of. Uh, uh, whip up, you know, a, f- a frenzied support for the person and thinking that reform comes from the top down. You know, I just don't know. So uh, we'll see. Uh, it, it takes a long time to arrive at, at a sort of a, 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 a radical anarchist, agorist uh, position, mm-hmm. actually. It doesn't come easy uh, for you, uh, for anyone. And uh, uh, I think Beck may be on that road. I just hope that it goes fast. And uh, he keeps studying and keeps learning. He says he wants me back on. So that's good. Awesome. Now, one of the first things that came up in the conversation was the question of value, which I think a lot of people that are curious or skeptical about Bitcoin, that's one of the first things that doesn't really sit well with them. It's hard to wrap your, your finger around it. And I appreciated how you just led with the dichotomy of Bitcoin with the capital B, Bitcoin with the lowercase b, the payment network versus the currency. Do you right. think that's important? Uh, it's an important part of explaining Bitcoin and value to make that distinction? Well, I can tell you this, John. It took me um, the better part of a year to finally figure that out. 
right? It took me a very long time. I mean, if you had asked me this time last year, why is Bitcoin valuable? I would have said, God, I know. You know, I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just kind of looking at the market, all right? You know, I don't really know. So it's taken me about 12 months to kind of fully figure out a coherent answer to that. And the answer is that it has a brilliant payment system in the blockchain, you know, which, which is like an epic innovation in the history of humanity. I mean, mm-hmm. it solved the Byzantine generals' problem, so-called, in, in math. It, it solved the problem of dubs, double spending and, and, and currency. The open source network solved the problem of having a central point of, of, of failure, um, all, all these um, innovations kind of wrapped, come wrapped in with Bitcoin. And um, I realized, mainly because of my sort of Misesian uh, economics background, uh, that you, know, you kind of have a currency that's just valuable because I claim it to be valuable. You know, it has to be valued by the market for some reason. And like gold came to be valued because it was valued as a, as a commodity before it was valued as a money. So Bitcoin came to be valued as a money um, uh, only after its payment system uh, in the blockchain came to be appreciated as a technology. That's, that's the historical uh, narrative mm. that's critical to understanding why Bitcoin has value at all. So if you take away the payment system, uh, Bitcoin would have you know absolutely n- uh, no value uh, whatsoever. So I wanted to explain that. He seemed really intrigued by that. I think it's an important distinction because uh, Bitcoin is both a payment system and a payment net and and, a, and a, it's a payment network and a currency. And we're not used to anything else like that in mm-hmm. existence. I mean, PayPal is just a, a payment network. Um, it, it was originally intended as a kind of alternative money system, but of course the state took it over. Um, and uh, the dollar is a, just a, a, a pure a government-controlled um, money, and, that, and that's it. It's not a payment system. But with Bitcoin, you have a kind of a double secession taking place. You know, I mean, it's like an, uh, issuing all the payment systems to innovate this amazing thing called the blockchain, which lives on a distributed network, um, and also a reinvention of currency itself outside uh, state uh, state channels. And, and they're united together in one incredibly brilliant protocol. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, yeah, that's a foundational point of Bitcoin. I could not have said those sentences last year. Um, it's something that took me a long time to understand. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's, it's definitely a major aspect of Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is so special. And um, I think you communicated it pretty well. And I hadn't really considered that Bitcoin began to get its value above zero um, when the network started establishing itself and when people started seeing like, okay, we have a network effect here. There's something here. It's not just a hobby for a few anarchists and and crypto anarchists and, and computer geeks. That's right. That's right. I mean, it was released in January of 2009. And you could, there were, you know, people in the geek community, you know, would trade it back and forth like, well, here's my unit of Bitcoin. Now you have it. Uh, oh, my goodness. I don't have it anymore. But you have it, you know. Uh, now send it back to me. Okay. Wow. I got it back, you know. And so it's, you know, this process of testing the, the blockchain as a technology took, took place over the course of um, essentially 10 months. It was October 5th, I believe, 2009, before Bitcoin registered its first real uh, price above zero. And that grew out of the experience of the previous 10, 10 months of testing the blockchain as a mechanism for transmitting uh, digital property. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's the real uh, history. 
Um, when the history books are written, those months between uh, January and October of 2009 are going to be absolutely critical for understanding where it, what gave rise to this. And it's very interesting, uh, John, because uh, if you go back and read Manger's um, Principles of Economics, he has a chapter on the origin of money in there. And he talks about how it, it takes uh, decades and decades and sometimes you know generations for for a particular commodity that's used that, that has use value to obtain monetary value, uh, for it to be acquired not for consumption but for exchange. Uh, and, and this evolutionary process takes place you know, sort of gradually. So sometimes um, something can be money in one space but not in another space. It can be money for some purposes but not for all purposes. And eventually over the long period of time, you know, we're talking about 20, 50, you know, maybe 200 years, it becomes a generally accepted medium of, of exchange. So it's a long and drawn-out process, but it's an evolutionary process of continual change. Well, we're living, you know, in the 21st century now, and everything happens on on fast forward, mm-hmm. right? So, so what Menger described as a process uh, that takes uh, uh, many decades, or or, or even centuries, has suddenly collapsed down into into time. So it took essentially 10 months to go from. From from uh, you know coming into existence uh, to obtaining its first actual market prices as a money. Yeah, it's, so a, it's a beautiful thing to see. I mean, we are kind of privileged as a generation to to live in a time where we get to see this actually happening. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. It's like we're at least for me, who studied the history of money so much, um, and always kind of wished I had been there. You know, at the time. Uh, you know, way back when something went from being a, a pure commodity uh, with use value to becoming a money. I mean, that's kind of an exciting moment in history. Mm-hmm. But it's always been conjectural history uh, to some extent. Well, it's no longer conjectural. You know, we, we actually lived through this process in our own times. Uh, that's kind of an exciting thing. Yeah, for sure. It's it's amazing. It's wonderful. And uh, I, I feel privileged to be a part of it and can't wait to see where it's going in the next decade or, you know, I can't imagine what it's going to be like in 100 years as far as technology making government irrelevant, really. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you look at something like the dollar and it's just it's just idiotic, really, um, by comparison. It's, it's a stupid and old technology. <sighs> you know, it, maybe it had its place in, the, in its time, but, but it was nationalized, it was socialized, it was taken over by government and therefore ruined. And we've, we've been in kind of a holding pattern, sort of suffering mm-hmm. for a, a full century as government wholly controlled half of all of our economic transactions, you know. Uh, and we didn't know what we were missing. It's, it's a little like living under socialism and thinking you always have to stand in line for bread, you know. Mm. Um, uh, we've always just been used to uh, a money that's always depreciating in value, always getting kind of worse, a technology that's very, very expensive to use and cumbersome and not keeping up with the times. Yeah. And then, and then you look at Bitcoin, and it's just like you know, you hear music. You know, <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah, exactly. Suddenly, it's like oh, a, a modern form of money. This <laughs> is amazing. Exciting. How taboo! Yeah, it's, it's it's funny because it's like we use we use our smartphones. You know, we have massive access to goods and services like we've never had before. We can we can fly around the world. We can do video chats. We can do these kind of talks. You know, using free technology with Skype, and yet we're still using a 100-year-old, yeah. um, old-fashioned uh, currency system. It doesn't make any sense. So, big, yeah. Bitcoin is is an innovation like any other. Really, it's just that I think we had come to not expect innovation to take place in our money. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's, the, it's become the status quo and nobody know, knows any otherwise. You can always tell in, in spaces where there's high and heavy government regulation, like the auto industry, for example, yep. uh, the innovation is few and far between. Whereas, yep. uh, you know, the Internet, when that started coming about, there, I mean, even still to this day, there's very little regulation. There's not much the government can do. But think about how, how much things have innovated, gotten smaller, faster, uh, yep. more features for less money. But then you take a look back at the auto industry, and I'm always surprised that we're still using internal combustion engines to travel. You know what I'm saying? Oh. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Uh, the the car uh, issue is really puzzling to me because in, in many ways, automobiles were better like 40 years ago than they are today. <laughs> you know, yeah, okay, we have automatic locking doors and we have little keys we can press and make a beep. And, you know, uh, we've got GPS and, and, you know, we can watch a movie while we drive or whatever. All that's fine, but none of, the, none of which has anything to do with the actual operation of the car, you know? <laughs> Uh, the the automobile itself as a technology has been frozen in place by the regulatory state, um, and 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 in many ways uh, it's gotten worse. You know, so you can't hang your 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 arm out the window anymore because the belt line of the car is too high. You know, the, you know, there's all these kinds of, of issues. Uh, government just distorts everything it touches mm-hmm. in this grim way, and this has happened to money also. You yeah. know. I didn't fully understand this until Bitcoin came along. Bitcoin came along. I suddenly, I, I'll never forget my first Bitcoin transaction. Um, I mean, I it was so fast and so wonderful, and using this QR code and transferring uh, a value across a geographically non-contiguous lines. Um, it was such a revelation. I, my eyes just like popped open. <laughs> it finished. I got out of my chair and I just literally danced around the room. I mean, I danced around the room because I thought, holy crap, I've experienced the future. Nice. This, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, that novelty effect still hasn't worn off for me. I yeah, <laughs> I know. It's still, still exciting. I know. I still get a, a kick every time it happens. Even on the show with Beck, you know, Elizabeth Poche and I exchanged Bitcoin right there on the set. Mm-hmm. And we deliberated. She said, should we practice ahead of time? I said, no, no, let's don't. Just don't practice. Let's just let's just take a risk let's and do, do it. it. And it t- you know it took about four seconds. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> Went off without a without yeah. a hitch. Now yeah. Beck's audience is an older demographic and um, mostly conservative people that are you know their whole philosophy is based on preserving traditions and institutions. And on the flip side, um, you know an older generation. Of, of the left, I don't like the whole left right, right dichotomy. I saw you posted Murray Rothbard's uh, "Left and Right Prospects for Liberty" that totally Amazing, threw right. that all into uh, in disarray for me. But uh, yeah. you know, people on the what people see as the left uh, progressives, they also are dedicated and committed to preserving institutions, both corporate and government. And I'm always reminded of a conversation I had with a farmer's market vendor, an older gentleman, long white beard. Uh, We do the farmer's market in San Marcos, and I always talk to him about Bitcoin. He's actually interested. He comes up and asks me questions. Mm -hmm. And the most recent conversation we had, this gentleman has a Lloyd Doggett bumper sticker on his car. He's a congressman from CD25 for like two decades, a Democrat, just your run-of-the-mill progressive. He was anti-war for a little while, but for the most part, he's a big statist. Yeah. so this guy's a traditional democratic socialist progressive, and we're talking about Bitcoin, and, and he bringing all these objections. I overcome each one of objections, and finally it boils down to this. He says, you know, I won't put faith or put my wealth in any currency that isn't backed up by an, a legitimate institution. 
And that kind of hit me like, oh, obviously the, you know, the United States government is, is illegitimate, but people have this faith, this need in this legitimate institution. What do you think we can do to undermine that with older generations? Do you think it's worth the effort or should we just yeah. focus on the Ouch. young folk or what are your yeah. thoughts on that? That's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, we've, we've had so many generations that are now raised in the 20th century, which was, which was the age of the state, you know, uh, where the great myth was sown that there can be no order without imposition without Leviathan, without it coming down from the top down. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, John, we've lived this way for so long. Maybe people don't understand, but now we do have a new generation that's beginning to understand that order flows from, from action, from voluntary association. That's, that's what gives rise to creativity and beauty in this world, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because people are using the Internet. You know, there's no central authority that created the app economy, which is this brilliant... Um, a multi-billion dollar inst- industry with, with, with millions of apps you can download instantly. That was never approved by any, by any um, politician. Um, the apps come from all over the world. It's a truly globalized system that that's like connects with you as an individual. I mean, it's anarchism. Um, so I'm, I have a lot of hopes for the young generation. Um, the, as for the older, older people who don't understand this, I don't know how you dislodge that sort of Hobbesian assumption in people's heads, really. Um, <clears throat> but I know that it's possible because between, um, I would say, the early 16th century and World War I, there was a widespread cultural understanding that human life is made best when it's spontaneous and, and not imposed and when nobody's in charge. That was the prevailing ideology. Mm-hmm. And that just began to change uh, late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, and it resulted in, in mass bloodshed and, and tremendous amounts of global human suffering. Oh, yeah. But I would like to recapture that, that, that vision somehow. Mm-hmm. This is why, John, I have no hesitation in calling myself an anarchist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I, have, I, I don't believe that I'm converting anybody by saying that. Uh, I, I don't think that if I say, oh, I'm an anarchist, they'll say, oh, well, great, I will be one too. That's not the point. The point is to kind of like dislodge um, this sort of embedded assumption in, in people's heads that we have to have authority running our lives all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like, I like to say that as a way of kind of like offering up a challenge to mm. people. What do you believe is the source of order? Why do you think we get along? Why is your life great? Is it because of the state? Or because of you and your friends, your family, and the people you connect with all around the world through mm. uh, online commerce and, and digital uh, media. Yeah. It's a, a very interesting question. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting to explore, and it's interesting to uh, try to shake people out of that Hobbesian way of thinking. Yeah. And I think the beauty of Bitcoin is it's one of the only living, working, global examples of anarchy in action. So for those detractors, here we have something that we can point to, we can demonstrate, and we could say... We could say here, something uh, David Friedman wrote in Machinery of Freedom that really stuck with me is he says, uh, you know, there's two ways to teach people about, about liberty and that, and that true 100% liberty works. Uh, one is education through books, like I've chosen to do with this book, and the other one is education by showing people and by demonstrating, by pointing to an institution that operates outside of monopolistic, coercive, mm-hmm. hierarchical control. Mm-hmm. And here we have Bitcoin that seems to mm-hmm. be functioning pretty damn smooth without a central yeah. authority. You know, it's, it's a yeah. winner. 
people forget, uh, John, I'm glad you brought this up because people forget this about Bitcoin. It really is a global thing. You know, I think as Americans, we, uh, we're the empire. We tend to think of it as uh, just relevant to us, but it's actually tremendously relevant for all people around the world. I mean, it's hugely popular in Africa um, and in India. Um, there's this very interesting, I think it might be an Indian-based organization called the Women's Annex that, no, it's Saudi Arabian, actually, uh, that where they believe that, that Bitcoin is going to be a beautiful thing to finally liberate women to own property and transfer property, sign contracts, and to experience their full, full dignity as economic actors for the mm-hmm. first time in the history of the world. And, and these sentiments are authentic and they're, they're, they're sincere and it's, it's really exciting. Uh, I think, by the way, Glenn Beck wants to do a show on the Women's Annex. That's nice. That's huge. That'll help win a lot of people over. All right, Jeffrey, before we let you go, give me some final thoughts on uh, what you think the implications are for the Bitcoin movement as a whole. Uh, that Glenn Beck just had this big show, well, and he sound, seems like he's he's now a proponent of Bitcoin. He said he's going to invest yeah. in some. What do you think this yeah, means for Bitcoin? That, that blew me away. I think it's really – well, one thing that makes me really happy is that there's a lot of 20-somethings who are now, like today, uh, thrilled that their parents called them up and said, you know that Bitcoin stuff <laughs> you were talking about? You know, Glenn Beck just talked about it on his radio show, actually. <laughs> and they feel vindicated in a way, you uh-huh. know. But I would say it's just a kind of a, a it's a big step uh, to, uh, towards the march um, for mainstream uh, acceptance. Not that mainstream is is what we're looking for, but if you can get radical, decentralized anarchist style institutions embraced by the bourgeoisie, yes. you know, I'm all for that. Yes. Yeah, if we can do it with currency, we can do it with healthcare, we can do it with defense, we can do it with justice, we can do it with the whole gambit before well, you know and we it. Have to, we have to do it, John, because we're, we're, we have to, all of us, no matter how old we are, wherever we live, we're going to have to start getting used to what it's like to um, not depend on the state. Yeah. Because uh, public institutions that the state has cobbled together are breaking down. They have been for probably 25 years or so, and we know where the future is. They're, they're non-functioning, they're not working for us, mm-hmm. <coughs> no longer hurt so serving the human population. Uh, we have to, all of us in our daily lives, um, examine how we live and uh, start preparing for life without the state. I strongly That's believe right. this. It's going to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, the time is now. And if we go ahead and um, you know, proselytize, build, and use these institutions, we'll create the alternative. We'll, uh, we'll explore and, and promote the alternative, and people will see that there's something they can flock to and leave the state behind. And in many ways, we don't even have to smash the state. We just have to ignore it and build a better alternative, like yeah. Buckminster Fuller said. Well, and, and Alex, uh, Alex, um, Alexis de Tocqueville said the same thing about the 19th century. He said that that's how the American Revolution happened. Uh, it was, wasn't because people just suddenly woke up one day and said, I want to create liberty. It's because they built it systematically over, mm-hmm. over a long period of time. By the way, John, uh, I want, I wish to say this to you, and I want to thank you again for, um, for introducing me to a lot of the ideas that I'm now um, a proponent of. Um, you were, your speech that you gave in New Hampshire two years ago was probably the single most radical thing I'd ever heard. Um, I had to speak after you and I was like destabilized and, and almost speechless and just kind of you know, white with, with uh, amazement, you know. Um, uh, but it really was great because um, <clears throat> you're the kind of person who – you take ideas so seriously that you actually want to live them out in your life. And that's an, an inspiration. Uh, so you've always inspired me for that reason. So I just want to thank you again. 
Well, I appreciate that. It means a whole lot coming from you, and, and you're inspiring me as well. So we have a little mutual admiration society going. Uh, before we let you go, last thing. Speaking of decentralized, peer-to-peer anarchist institutions, tell us about Liberty Me. Well, today has been a very good day on Liberty Me. We've had uh, so many people in the chat rooms, and we've had such fun just talking to each other and getting to know each other, friending each other, reading each other's articles, commenting on each other's articles, and engaging in discussions. And it's it's a time suck for sure, but uh, it's just thrilled me to see how this this kind of publishing uh, social network that I've that I've been building over uh, eight months as, as has come to life. It's one thing for something to be a wonderful technology, and I always knew I could do that, and that we did do that. It's a beautiful technology. But when you add the human energy and the creativity of the human minds crowdsourced into that space, it just takes on such beauty and such life. And it's, it's such a source of joy for me. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. Awesome. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm just thrilled that it's become such a source of joy for so many uh, others, too. I get, I get notes every day. Um, of of happy happy uh, customers, so you know that's just so gratifying to me. I never wanted to just do business; I wanted to change the world, awesome. and, and and I feel like I'm headed that way. So that's great. Is it still in beta mode? When can the general public get involved? Oh no, we're we've been live now. Uh, we had some database hiccups like last week, as you inevitably do once you open. But we've been open about two weeks. Um, but I would say this is the first. This is about day four. Of, of utter and complete stability. Awesome. Um, and you can see uh, what's happening. I mean, you know, people are really hanging out, you know. And uh, uh, so, yeah, we're open for business. I, I would encourage everybody to go to Liberty.me and, and sign up. It's, it's, it's $9 a month if you, if you go for a year. And, you know, I've had so many people tell me, you know, after the after first day of use that it's more than pay for itself. So, you know, okay. that's what you want. Do you want... You want fans, you want people to love what you're doing more than anything else, not just kind of uh, grudgingly paying you because you've got you know, something that they kind of temporarily thought that they might like. Um, this is serious. You know, it's, it's serious because I can tell because the customer base is, is, truly feels a sense of love towards what we're doing. And, that's great. You know, that's all I ever really wanted. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I feel very privileged to be, to be a part of it, uh, actually. Um, I'm, I'm happier now about what I'm doing in my life than, than I ever have been. All so. right. Sounds like you're doing something right, Jeffrey. Thanks for chatting with us, and thanks for everything you do for the cause of freedom and the cause of Bitcoin. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. It's really great to talk to you. It's always so great to talk to Jeffrey Tucker. I'm so excited that he's way into Bitcoin, one of the best proponents out there. And I'm always enamored when I talk to him. I'm a really big fan of Jeffrey Tucker. I want to invite you guys to check out Liberty.me. He's put a lot of work into this project. And I think it's really going to change the game when it comes to connecting like-minded individuals through online, social media, your own publishing outlet without having to go through the big guys. Really exciting stuff going on there. So it's always great to talk with him. And I'll be seeing him at the Porcupine Freedom Festival, Porcupine Freedom Festival 2014. That's being put on by the Free State Project up in New Hampshire. There's always scores and scores of Bitcoiners out there. Catherine, uh, my lovely wife, and I will be there with our family. We're going to be helping out on a Bitcoin Magazine panel. She's going to be putting on a Women in Bitcoin Magazine panel. We're going to be premiering episode four through six of Sovereign Living, the reality show. Episode four is all about Bitcoin. So if you can, in the end of June, make it up to Porcupine Freedom Fest. We'll be doing some reporting from the road on our way up there as well. So I look forward to seeing Jeffrey Tucker there. All right, folks, to close down the program... 
We're going to be bringing you the third edition of Into the Mines, which is an exploration of everything mining, news, views, tips and tools you can use when it comes to Bitcoin and script mining. And I'm really proud of this edition. We talked with Ruben Alexander about the Miner's Manifesto. We covered a lot of news and views. And then we chat with my good friend Pat Butler about everything Bitcoin mining. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. This is Into the Mines, the third edition. Welcome to another informative edition of Into the Mines. In this episode, we bring you the latest news from the mining world, including a bit on FinCEN regulations as they relate to the renting of mining equipment. We cover some bad news for Butterfly Labs, and we bring you an exclusive interview with the editor of Bitcoin Magazine, Ruben Alexander, about the collaborative effort to put together a miner's manifesto. To close down the program, we share with you an interview I did with my good friend Pat Butler about Bitcoin mining, the ever-increasing hash rate, and some advice for new miners on not getting burned. So put on your hard hat and strap yourself in as we take you into the mines. But first, the numbers. At the time of this reporting, at 1.30 CST on Sunday, May 18th, 2014, Bitcoin is trading for $447.14 on Bitstamp.net, with a high of 451 and a low of 445. The overall network hash rate is 76,791,365 gigahash. The current network difficulty level is set at 8,853,416,000. 309. That's up 10.66% since the last difficulty reconfiguration. In the Litecoin world, Litecoin is currently trading at $10.28 on BTCE with a high of $10.35 and a low of $10.25. The overall network hash rate is 218,153 mega hash. Current network difficulty level is set at 7,798. That's up 6.14% since the last difficulty reconfiguration. Support for Into the Mines comes from ASICMiners.com, which is launching soon. Join their mailing list to be informed when it goes live. ASICMiners.com will be your one-stop source for all the details about the latest ASIC mining gear. Join the ASIC mining community at ASICMiners.com. Support also comes from Bitmain Tech, creators of the newly released Antminer S2 Bitcoin Miner. One terahash and only 1,000 watts. Order yours online today at bitmaintech.com. And now we're going to bring you some news from the Bitcoin and script mining world. Man, things are happening fast. Things are changing fast. Things are evolving fast. Prices are dropping fast. And difficulty is increasing fast. If you don't keep up, you might just get left behind. So without further ado, folks, here is the news for this edition of Into the Mines. A new benchmark for script mining. This is an article from Bitcoin Magazine written by Adam Hoffman. It starts, the technology of script mining ASICs has exploded in the past year, and many believe that 2014 will be the year of mining script-based currencies like Litecoin, Dogecoin, and Aurorcoin. For a company like Bliss Devices, these advancements are providing individuals with innovative chips, faster hashing, and lower cost of ownership. In fact, Bliss Devices has just announced what may be the highest-performing script ASIC to date. The article goes on to describe the specs on this new chip. 
says that the chips are yielding a hash rate between 4.5 mega hash and 4.8 mega hash, and they only require 18 watts of power per chip. The company will offer both a standalone ScriptR chip and a neon mining card that each contain eight of the ScriptR chips, providing a total of 37 mega hash worth of hashing power. Now, to put things in perspective, if you had GridSeed Minis, they deliver 350 kilohash for 7 watts of power. So to get the equivalent amount of hash power, that's 37 mega hash, you would need 17 of these GridSeed Minis, and that would be around 96 watts. So you compare 96 watts to just 18, and that is pretty innovative. Moving on, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, are offering a little bit of clarity on renting Bitcoin miners. This is from NewsBTC.com. The U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network has offered some clarity on the matter of renting Bitcoin miners in a letter dated April 29, 2014. Now, there was a business that reached out to them asking for some clarification. Uh, specifically, they were asking whether the rental of computer systems for mining virtual currency would make the company an administrator of virtual currency or a money transmitter. And the response says, uh, FinCEN basically finds that the company is not functioning as an administrator of virtual currency and that the company's renting of mining computer systems to third parties does not make the company a money transmitter under BSA regulations. This is uh, from the actual letter right here. The rental of computer systems to third parties is not an activity covered by FinCEN regulations. The regulations specifically exempt from money transmitter status a person that only provides the delivery, communication, or network data access services used by a money transmitter to supply money transmission services. Based on this exemption and on the description of the service offered by the company, we find that even if the company rents a computer system to third parties that will use it to obtain convertible virtual currency to fund their activities as exchangers, such rental activity in and of itself would not make the company a money transmitter subject to BSA regulation. Enforcement Network also made note in today's letter that escrow services operating in the digital currency space are also not considered money service businesses. There's some good news for those renting their mining equipment. There's an article in Gizmodo, Why Bitcoin Miners Are Moving to Tiny Towns in Washington State. There's not much in rural Washington, but there's a lot of dams, and dams mean hydroelectric power. Following the lure of cheap electricity, Bitcoin miners and their power-hungry server farms are making out for sleepy little towns in the Pacific Northwest. The article goes on to say, Powering up and cooling all those powerful processors requires a lot of, you guessed it, electricity. Last year, Bitcoin miners were sucking up an estimated 1 million kilowatt hours per day. It's a hefty electric bill right there, but Washington has some of the lowest electricity rates in the country, less than two cents per kilowatt hour for industrial customers in certain areas. The average U.S. household pays something like 12 cents a kilowatt hour. So, I mean, there's already people that are heading out that way, and as you can expect, when the Bitcoin difficulty continues to increase, a lot of people's existing equipment will no longer be profitable. People are going to make the move. They're going to take their entire farm, their entire company. This will mostly be the larger companies that can afford to make a large move like that and move out to different areas like the Pacific Northwest where you can get two cents per kilowatt hour. That is quite the competitive advantage. Next, here's another article from Bitcoin Magazine. It's the announcement of the Miner's Manifesto. It's written by Ruben Alexander. He, along with some other 
colleagues, co-conspirators, are working on putting together a miner's manifesto. This is a document that would serve the purpose of educating new miners about the reality of mining, the difficulties involved in mining, and they also have the goal of sending a message to mining companies to no longer defraud their customers, essentially educating the mining manufacturers and retailers on what consumers can expect and what they ought to deliver. We caught up with Ruben Alexander to discuss this further. Here's the interview with Ruben on the Miner's Manifesto. Ruben, thanks for joining us. Why don't you start by telling us what exactly is this project, the Miner's Manifesto, and where did this idea come about? So um, the idea for the Miner's Manifesto is that it is a uh, kind of like a passing down of wisdom from people who are very experienced with mining uh, bitcoins or other crypto coins. And uh, for people who are new at it, they could get to kind of see what to expect, um, even even set their standards high uh, so that they don't get taken advantage of by um, uh, scam miner companies, and also so that they are aware of the uh, realities of mining and how um, increased difficulty makes it less and less profitable. And, uh, and the, the way this came about is um, I was... Uh, receiving emails from a guy named Stan, uh, who is part of the uh, Bitcoin community. I think he mines as well. I'm not sure about that, but he was definitely saying that uh, there's a mining company, uh, I think it was KNC Miner, he was saying that uh, there were some things that he didn't like about how they were uh, doing refunds. And, uh, you know, from I did a paper, or I did an article on the, I think it's called The True Electrical Cost of Bitcoin, uh, Mining Bitcoin. And I kind of used KNC Miner as one of my sources because I, I was pretty sure that they were reliable based on the, what I read in the forums. But uh, Sam was saying the exact opposite. So, uh, you know, it was like three or four emails later, I decided that you know, maybe we can, need to take this at a higher level and um, just make a document that helps people uh, know when they're dealing with a bad company or, or at least have some uh, warning signs. And also, uh, just be fully aware when they purchase a miner. Uh, what to expect. Uh, so, yeah, right, we uh, published an announcement of this Miner's Manifesto on our website, published it on Reddit, and we've had, you know, I've seen uh, multiple people at a time jump in the document and place edits, make comments, and it's it's going to be uh, really decentralized editing uh, and, and adding information, then at the end of May, we're going to close up the document and uh, distribute it for free to uh, anyone who wants it. Well, it sounds like a great pro- uh, project. There's definitely a need for that. What do you think it is about the mining game that makes it so susceptible to fraud, over-promising, and under-delivering? Um, I've dabbled in mining a bit myself, and I've never experienced anything like it. You kind of have to uh, include in your expectations and your plans that stuff's going to be late, stuff isn't going to bring in the hashing power that it says it is, you're going to deal with some problems with not only the manufacturers, but also a lot of the resellers seem like they're just way in over their head. What do you think it is about the industry that makes this the case? Unfortunately, it seems more often than not. Uh, it's an extremely complicated uh, space where you have um, people who are brand new, uh, companies that are brand new that um, say they'll deliver by a certain time, but a lot of times they'll slip deadlines because they don't even understand uh, essential components to uh, making sure that they they ship on time and, and even ship products that makes it to the customer in the uh, in the way it was packaged. 
so um, it's a learning curve for the mining companies, and uh, that's for like high-end miners, uh, for for ones that actually are will actually be profitable. Uh, for the other lower-end miners that are being resold and are actually available, that can be purchased like you would expect the products to be purchased on Amazon. Um, a lot of times, those aren't even uh, profitable, where you'll pay a certain amount of money and you'll never even make that money back. Um, so that's like the environment, but I think that uh, every miner starts out with a kind of like a, uh, a very bright-eyed view of it, uh, being able to plug in a device and, and earn their own Bitcoin or mm-hmm. other cryptocurrency. And that enthusiasm often uh, just sends them into uh, uh, all the pitfalls that uh, a lot of people have uh, been writing about in the document. Mm-hmm. I saw on the post in Bitcoin Magazine, uh, the title is Announcement Miners Manifesto. You state that there's two goals for this particular document. The first one is to have experienced miners share their experience to kind of give the new guys a better understanding of how complex and difficult mining can be. And the second goal is to let mining companies know what miners expect of them. And I checked out the Miners Manifesto that, that you'll have in a Google Doc and it seems like it has a lot of tips and standards that miners would expect from these companies. How do you guys think this document is going to influence these mining companies? Is there going to be any leverage that you have? Do you all think just putting it out to the public and getting a bunch of people to sign on will help to influence them? What impact do you think this document will have on mining companies? Um, I think it's more indirect. Um, I mean, the, the main way I view this, because uh, you know that... Uh, Porkfest is coming up very soon, and there's going to be miners being uh, mining equipment being sold there. Um, so I expect I mean, it'd be nice if we could have this done before Porkfest and have um, something maybe a, a QR code where people, if, if they're buying buying mining equipment, they can scan this QR code, download a PDF, and they can actually, or maybe even before they buy the mining equipment, be aware of uh, everything they should know uh, before they actually use a device. Um, and so in that way, people are being educated along with purchasing money equipment that, that's right there. So um, that's one side. And on the other side, um, I think that uh, I don't expect, like, pu- by publishing this document that all mining, uh, all scam companies are going to go away and uh, everyone will ship this with their high-end miner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I-, I think what will happen, though, is that maybe there'll be some pushback if there's something uh, with regards... I mean, I saw a suggestion in the mining, uh, Miners Manifesto that um, mining companies shouldn't ever test uh, test an actual miner with real Bitcoin. They should use the testnet, which is a really beautiful application of the testnet. Um, but, you know, even if, if some company says, you know, we adhere to this section of the Miners Manifesto where we don't use... Uh, we don't actually mine real Bitcoins. They only use the testnet. Um, that kind of some stand out from the competition, and uh, you know I think maybe little things like that where uh, you know and if someone decides to adhere to all the different aspects, they can uh, you know maybe ship the document with their miner. Interesting. Yeah, that seems like it would be really beneficial. It could be an opportunity for some businesses to stand out above their competition. Before we let you go, Ruben, why don't you uh, give one bit of advice? If you could give any short piece of advice to someone that is looking to start mining, what would it be? Um, the major thing is, you know, in so many, you know, I've been looking at this for a few years, uh, looking at mining for a few years, and uh, from everything that I've seen and all the experience that people have had, 
um, it's almost always better to just directly exchange Bitcoins for mining uh, instead of mining um, mining them. And the, I think the only reason why you someone should go into Bitcoin mining is because they truly uh, love it and they and they want to be part of uh, something that's never been happened before. Uh, this Bitcoin revolution where they can, can uh, help uh, secure a part of the network and, uh, and make it more stable. Again, you can find more information about the Miner's Manifesto and you can participate in the collaborative project by simply searching Bitcoin Magazine Miner's Manifesto. Bitcoin mining company Cointerra enters cloud mining. This is an article in the Wall Street Journal. Cointerra on Monday announced that it will begin offering cloud-based mining services to its customers, becoming the second big miner this month to make the move. As the price of Bitcoin has tumbled, it has become increasingly difficult to profitably mine Bitcoin, a problem for the miners and the companies catering to them. The article goes on to say, As Bitcoin has grown, the hash rate, a measurement of mining power, has skyrocketed. In September 2013, the entire mining network reached the one petahash per second rate, a multiple of 40 times higher than in January 2013. Now Cointera will be selling one petahash contracts. It's gotten so big, it's harder to mine profitably on anything but a very large scale. Cointera itself saw sales drop 30% in April, thus the move into cloud mining. Now Cointera is a bit of an enigma in the... Bitcoin mining manufacturing realm, they they came out strong and they had a strong reputation. They were very open and honest, transparent with a lot of what was taking place. But many people that purchased their miners were disappointed when they found that the actual uh, hash rate was 1.6 terahash instead of the 2 terahash, still taking up the 2100 watts per each unit. And since then, a lot of people sent their miners back. They canceled their orders. They're now selling that very same machine that was selling for $6,000 or more for $3,500. Maybe a good investment at this point, but uh, only time will tell, of course. So that was an article out of the Wall Street Journal. It's a good sign that these mainstream publications are getting into the nitty-gritty when it comes to Bitcoin mining. Here's an article from ARSTechnica.com. In 18 months, Fed's got nearly 300 complaints about Bitcoin miner maker. Federal Trade Commission received worldwide complaints about, you guessed it, Butterfly Labs. The article reads, nearly 300 complaints have been filed with the Federal Trade Commission against the Bitcoin miner makers at Butterfly Labs, according to documents ARS Technica received from a Freedom of Information Act request. In its short existence, Butterfly Labs has become one of the world's most mysterious Bitcoin-related companies. For the past year, the Kansas-based manufacturing company has faced numerous accusations of fraud. Currently, the company is battling one lawsuit in federal court with more likely on the way. But Butterfly Labs previously lost a civil case by default in Kansas's Johnson County Court in late November 2013. The plaintiff, a Californian named William Lawley, won a judgment of more than 13000 but told ARS Technica that he had not yet collected the award. The FTC complaints come from locales as diverse as Estonia, Argentina, Redding, California, and Winnipeg, Canada. They all tell a similar story describing orders made that were either never fulfilled or refund requests that were denied or not processed. ARS has made the full spreadsheet complete with redactions made by the FTC available online. An example of one complaint from a customer in Orlando is below. We're going to go ahead and read that complaint just to give you an idea of what kind of business you're dealing with with Butterfly Labs. 
I placed two orders for advanced computers on February 2nd, 2013 for over $60,000 worth of computers. These computers are designed to generate revenue online. I was led to believe April or May would be the shipping dates. However, they never shipped my products and I requested a refund. I was given a partial refund as I agreed to wait an additional month. I received half my money back. However, as of October, I still did not have my products shipped and the company was refusing to refund me the remaining $30,000 they still owe me. Despite my constant request for a refund and to cancel my order in its entirety, they eventually shipped me a computer that was not what I had originally ordered and worse yet, it was broken on arrival and poorly constructed. I returned their broken computer and once more requested a refund. They still have not refunded me. They are ignoring me, and I am unsure I can follow through with litigation as they are in Kansas and I am in Florida. Now, during the testimony in the probation hearing referenced above, BFL's chief financial officer, Bruce Bourne, said Butterfly Labs is expected to earn 25 to $30 million in revenue in 2013. In an email to ARS, Bourne said the company's goal is 100% customer satisfaction well there's still a lot of people waiting on resolution maybe you're one of them just goes to show that in the mining world you got to be careful who you're dealing with it's almost an expectation for the company you're ordering your products from to either be delayed or to overpromise and underdeliver. that's why i think it's important that uh, ruben alexander and his colleagues get this miners manifesto out to at least educate the public and show these mining companies exactly what consumers expect of them. Next, we're going to bring you an interview with a good friend of mine, Pat Butler. Went to high school with this gentleman, and we used to party back in the day. And come to find out, he's deep into Bitcoin mining and super excited about it. Very knowledgeable and well-spoken young man, Pat Butler. We chatted with him about Bitcoin mining, the difficulty increases, and some things you can expect if you're a new miner. We're going to bring you that interview right now on Into the Mines. Pat, thanks for joining us today. Uh, let me start by asking you something I like to ask everyone I talk to. How did you first get into Bitcoin? And then maybe talk about why you started mining Bitcoin. Sure. Um, I heard about Bitcoin in 2011 from a, a computer networking friend of mine. And he explained uh, what the blockchain was, how mining works. I, I'm not sure it really sunk in right then with me, but it, I was interested enough to buy my own Bitcoin, and he sold me one in person. Right. And that was really my first experience. I, I liked the um, ease of use, and although I didn't quite understand it, I thought the technology was interesting. And over the next year, I got a, a better understanding of the blockchain and, and why it's so valuable as a technology. And that was really what prompted me to get more involved. And at that time, you know, in 2011, 2012, Mining was looking like quite an attractive option. <laughs> so we, uh, I, I got with um, that same person that introduced me to Bitcoin and another person, and we made our first um, large pre-order. Now, the two guys with me had been doing mining on their GPUs and graphic cards for a couple of years before this. Nice. But when ASICs came into the game... It really changed everything. It was significantly more power, and it required significantly more investment. So we put in an initial investment with Butterfly Labs for one of their mini-rig products. It was $30,000, and it wow. was a pre-order, and it was supposed to arrive within three months, and we placed the order in October of 2012. Um, and that's that was that was my first experience in 
uh, purchasing mining hardware. And it was not a great one because I was still <laughs> sitting there a year later wow. and wondering where my hardware was from BSL. Wow. Um, however, you know, we were early enough um, that even with the time lag, we did pretty well off of those machines. What was the hash rate on that $30,000 machine? So that was, um, it, it was initially going to be one machine at 1,500 giga hash, 1.5 terahash. And what they ended up doing, because they had power supply issues, is they uh, split it down to three machines, 500 giga hash each. Interesting. And, so, and that was a significant amount of hash power oh yeah. uh, in 2012. And even in 2013, when we got the hardware late 2013, it was still pretty significant. At the beginning, with that machine, we were generating around four to five coins a day. Nice. Very nice. Let's talk about the climate and how it's changed surrounding Bitcoin mining when you first started compared to now. And, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about pre-orders and how you think the whole pre-order game fits in back then and, and what the significance of pre-orders is now, and if you think it's a good idea. Yeah, well, pre-orders didn't really start until ASICs entered the game. And um, basically, back in 2011, 2012, uh, Bitcoin was still pretty much unique to tech-savvy users. And it was a lot easier to just get into mining without a lot of startup costs if you were tech-savvy enough and you, you knew um, sort of how to do that, how to get involved and how to go online, look at the forums, um, figure out how to, how to get the most out of, out of hardware that you had sitting around your house and applying that towards Bitcoin. Uh, so... Then when um, when Bitcoin started to break above a dollar and get in the dollar to ten dollar range, uh, you know you started to see these hardware producers come out that were really looking to profit off of the new demand for end user hardware because people were beginning to see the opportunity uh, that mining would offer if Bitcoin was going to be a sustainable long-term thing and you know it was gaining some momentum so um basically those guys started entering the game you started seeing uh you know the graphics cards a little bit more specialized hardware coming out and then the asics really changed everything because they were produced specifically uh to mine bitcoin on the sha256 algorithm so what when that happened uh it really turned into a race and these companies um, were selling product before it was produced or tested, uh, and it established a, a pre-order market. And actually, an interesting thing about that is I was at the Texas Bitcoin conference, and Josh Thurland, the head of Butterfly Labs, was there, and he was commenting about the, the nature of mining being a pre-order market. And he's actually the one who set the biggest precedent for that. Um, and if you know anything about Butterfly Labs, you can see they've been notorious about delivery. So mm -hmm. uh, they don't have a great reputation. Um, but basically, that, once, the, once the race started, all of these new companies came out. They were trying to compete to get to the end user. Um, and they, some of them were legitimate and were trying to create good reputations and secure future business. And others were 
a little bit more of scam artists. And mm. I think that's a difficult uh, thing in today's climate if you're trying to get into mining. It's just um, it's, it's difficult to go online and figure out which companies are legitimate and which companies are scammers. Some mm-hmm. of the scammers look really professional. Yeah, yeah, and even some of the legitimate companies sometimes fail to deliver or un- under-deliver. Can you talk about your experience, maybe juxtapose your experience dealing with Butterfly Labs compared to dealing with Cointera? I understand you guys invested in some Cointera machines, and while they did pretty much deliver on time, they under-deliver on the power. What is your experience in those businesses? And maybe you can also talk about, for people that are new to the mining game, what are some things they can look out for to make sure they don't either fall victim to a scam or fall victim to a company that delays and delays and delays? Sure. Um, the, the first thing I would say, as far as making sure that you don't fall victim to a scam, it's important to go online, go onto all the forums, and start researching the companies. And what you'll see is almost every mining company has some negative reputation out there. But you will see um, that some have delivered, some haven't, and some just don't have any information out there. If you are looking at a company and you can't find a ton of redundant information on the Internet about their hardware and customer experiences, I would not buy from them because I, I believe that they are either extremely new or likely a scam. And if, if they're just a, a new competitor, you know, some further research is warranted. But a lot of these scam artists, um, they just want to have a pretty website and they, they will not ever really plan on producing or delivering anything. And you won't see much information out there as far as customer complaints. With these other large companies that, that are delivering, I would say the main ones are Butterfly Labs, Cointera, KNC. Um, with these companies, it's the, the, I would say those are the, the ones that are really racing each other um, to secure market share. And what you've seen is that Butterfly Labs has a pretty awful reputation, but there is a lot of volume of information around out there about them and they have sold a lot of hardware. So while they have a bad reputation for delivery um, because their pre-orders have lagged over a year in some cases, they, they have actually delivered something. And, you know, you can put that for a total scam. I would go put my money back into them because mm-hmm. you'll, you'll probably get burned. But that would be my advice on Butterfly. Um, with with a company like Cointera, it's really interesting because they actually just got into the space um, last May, in, uh, so May of 2013, and they actually did a pretty good job of competing in this pre-order market. They had a product within about eight months that was that was out to the end user. Now, the problems that they had. Uh, that, it, that basically what I think happened is that they they had a great technical team. Um, they started going into chip production. They set some targets that they wanted to hit that they thought were feasible. And then I feel like everything went kind of smooth until, you know, about two months away from delivery when they actually got the chips in hand to test. Mm. And, and I, what I believe happened is that the chips came in performing a little bit more poorly than they had expected. And so they had to adjust their specs downward um, in terms of power efficiency and hash power. And, you know, that's something that nobody wants to hear who pre-ordered 
expecting more efficient and higher hash power out of their machine, right? So the interesting thing about Cointera is that they actually did a really good job of, of trying to come out and compete and secure a good reputation. But because of the nature of the market and the fact that they did do pre-orders and that they under-delivered, their reputation online is really tarnished and you won't find a lot of praise about them. Mm. Um, I personally have used both their hardware and BFL's hardware. Um, I'd say that both both uh, companies have hardware that works well. Um, one thing about the Cointera TerraMiner is that I think is is also responsible for some of their return rate is that those machines move a lot of air and they really can heat up the space and those mm. machines they start to have problems if they get too hot they're also really difficult to cool so I think that that's causing some problems for people who are not using them in data centers and then the last company is is KNC that I would discuss and I don't have any personal experience with them they have historically had the best reputation of all these companies because their Jupiter and Saturn miners um, came out on time and with their hit their hash power targets. So they um, in their first their first product delivery, they cemented a really great reputation. Um, and most of their their stuff was delivered back in November and December, and then they they recently have taken some pre-orders for uh, some higher-performing machines, some script miners, and they've had some delivery problems on this second batch. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing to watch out for, is you can't always take a company's reputation at face value if if they've delivered one wave of hardware on time and then they're now taking pre-orders for a second. It, it's so competitive uh, that you have to always assume that there's a good chance that the, that the machines might underperform. Mm. Interesting. And so even a company with a great reputation doesn't isn't, isn't always a guarantee, you know. Yeah, it's a and tough it's game. And it's a real gamble if you're just an end user sitting here looking at these different machines and trying to think about, you know, what's your best chance to ROI. It's, yeah. a, it's a tough thing. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of risk involved when it comes to Bitcoin mining. And in order to be successful, you really have to have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and take the risks when you think it's going to pay off. But again, you really don't know. And uh, maybe that can lead into my final question for you today. Talk about the uh, network difficulty, because you've been around in the mining game for quite some time when the difficulty was far less, and now it's just increasing almost at an exponential rate. It seems like it's starting to level off a little bit, but tell us your experience with the network difficulty, how it's translated to your uh, profit generation, and what you think for the future. Do you think there's still room for the little guy, or do you need a pretty significant investment to even come come in close to returning your investment when it comes to Bitcoin mining and the difficulty? increases so basically a lot of people when they're looking to get into mining they will sit down they'll get on their computer and they'll start looking at these mining calculators for ROI and I have a problem with those because there are two huge variables which affect Bitcoin and they are more important than any of the um, fixed inputs that you can measure so those variables are difficulty and Bitcoin price and um, what, what you've seen, once again, with the whole ASIC race is, you know, back, back before 2012, you saw a difficulty curve that was 
not nearly as exponential as it has been in the last year, and that's because you've gotten so much hash power put onto the network from these companies, and it's really been looking like it's going to be exponential growth forever. I think that's coming to an end, and I think we've seen a bit of a slowdown um, in the difficulty rise. I also think that the, the next time that we're going to see exponential growth on the difficulty curve is going to have to be from a new technology, not ASICs, because I think ASICs are basically pretty maxed out. There mm. are some out now that are on the 28 nanometer spec. There are some coming out on the 20 nanometer spec, and people are talking about 14 nanometer at the end of the year. The thing is, is none of those jumps are as significant as from as going from 55 down to 28. Mm. Um, so they're not going to, they're not going to. They're not going to uh, provide the same jump in electricity efficiency that is going to make mining profitable and attract people to get into it. Um, so you look at, at, at the, the situation today, and you've got about a $450 Bitcoin. Um, when you look at mining hardware, there is not a lot of stuff out there that really looks like it's going to ROI based on that price. Mm. Um, so a lot of times, actually, what I, I, I say every time you're going to get involved in mining, you want to be looking at the long-term um, goal, and you're basically mining to hold bitcoins for the long term. There's, that's that's really the only smart way to get into mining. I think if you're if you're just going to cash out, I think that you'll probably lose. Um, so if, if that's your strategy, your choice is. What, how many bitcoins can I buy today versus how many bitcoins would this machine that I'm going to buy today mine me mm -hmm. over its life? And you have to take into account your electricity costs and, and all of that stuff. And I would say that at, at the 450 price, it really does look better right now to just buy bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't know where that price is going to be in a couple of months even. And, you, you know, if you got in a pre-order... Uh, you you may see the price go nuts while you're just waiting for your hardware. Mm -hmm. um, so in that vein of thought, I would say that the smart thing to do if you've decided you want to commit your some of your money to Bitcoin would be to evaluate um, your options for mining hardware. If you see something that you like, go ahead and pick it up, but you also should buy Bitcoin while they are so cheap so that you can hedge yourself out yeah. of the mining bet and still do well if Bitcoin price increases. That's good advice. And that's probably the best strategy to have um, as far as trying to ROI and do well uh, in the space. Um, but you have to make it more of a long-term bet, and you have to understand the risks. Um, and, of course, Bitcoin is binary, so like everybody says, it's either going to be worth a lot more one day or nothing. <laughs> and right that's on. what you're dealing with. Excellent. Well, Pat, thank you so much for chatting with us. We really appreciate all your insight and the advice you've given to the listeners. And until next time, happy mining. Sure. Thanks, John. Well, folks, that was it for a jam-packed segment of Into the Minds. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate the support of our sponsors. That's Bitmain Tech, bitmaintech.com. Check out the Antminer S1, which is currently selling for less than $200. So get them while they're hot. They're still good machines. And I also want to thank 
the support of ASICminers.com. They are going to be launching soon. It'll be a forum. It'll be a news site. It'll be your source for everything Bitcoin and Scriptcoin mining related. So thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of Into the Mines. And I want to send this message, as always, happy mining. Well, that was it. Really long, exciting, jam-packed, info-packed edition of Sovereign BTC. I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for everything you do for the cause of Bitcoin. Remember, folks, if you're holding on to those Bitcoin, you think the price may be a little low, it may be actually a stable area. I, of course, prefer it to be two, three, four, ten times higher than it is. What I'm getting at is spend your Bitcoins. Grow the ecosystem. If you want the value to rise, you have to build value with those Bitcoins. Frequent Bitcoin merchants, frequent anyone that's accepting or trading in Bitcoin, check out GYFT.com, GIFT.com. You can buy stuff from Target, Whole Foods, Amazon, anything that suits your fancy, you should be able to find through GIFT.com. I just want to remind you once again, as I always do at the end of the program, use Bitcoin, live free, and prosper.